This is an ASCII Live media production for the Manly Warringah Sea Seagulls official podcast channel. This is the Golden Eagles podcast, hosted by Manly Media Manager Wayne Cousins, along with Sea Eagles Premiership winner and Chairman of the Golden Eagles Association, Mark Bryant. Each week, Cuzzo and Boxy will be joined by a different Sea Eagles legend to relive some great moments from our proud history and to find out what each of the guys are up to now. The Golden Eagles podcast is proudly presented by Wormald, a classic sponsor of the mighty Manly Warringah Sea Eagles. Now over to Cuzzo and Boxy with this week's special guest. And welcome back to another episode of the Golden Eagles podcast. Boxy, good to see you again. You too, Cuzzo, as always. Now, mate, uh, first of all, before we introduce our next guest, we have to say big thank you to our listeners. The feedback has been so positive. It's great that they love hearing from all the old buffheads, uh, which is which is fantastic. Um, no, it, it's great. And um, hopefully we'll be able to do more and more of these and catch up with uh, more of our legends of the past going forward. Today we are talking to Sea Eagle number 254, a former strapping prop who played 114 games for Manly and has one of the best nicknames in the club. His nickname is Magilla. We're talking to the great Ian Thompson. Now, that's Thompson without the P. Ian, welcome. Great to be here. Now, first of all, who gave you that nickname, Magilla? Frog's Eyes did, actually. Frogs and Gibbsy. Somehow, they uh, came up with it in their inventive mind, and uh, it seemed to stick because we had Alan Thompson in the team. There was only one Tomo, so they had to come up with something a little different. And uh, before one game at Brookvale Oval, they just initiated me with it. Like all good nicknames, if you complain about it, it sticks. So uh, I tried not to complain about it, but it still stuck. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, the great cartoon character too, isn't it? Magilla Gorilla? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there you go. Yes. Well, I don't that, know who yeah. was named after who. <laughs> Ian's not the smallest bloke. He's a, yeah, as you said, strapping prop, uh, like most props are, Kazo. Mm. So, you know, he's definitely not a small bloke, that's for sure. Well, what was your playing weight back in your days, Ian? It's interesting, isn't it? I, I still think my ideal weight was somewhere about 107 kilo. And I note with interest that Greg Inglis played at that <laughs> somewhere around that. So it does change that change, show the change in the game. Boxy, your playing weight? Uh, I found my best playing weight was about 104 or 105 kilos so uh, there are a lot of outside backs that run twice as quick as us uh, yes. and, and that get around to that but isn't it good when we catch them oh absolutely and when we do you don't let them go <laughs> no. you drive them into the dirt it's great to talk about front rowers and the great uh, work they do in the engine room now let's go through the great career of ian thompson tomo ian mcgilla you were graded by balmain in 1974 before spending the next two seasons at queenbian your father jim and brother gary were both former balmain players tell us about that yeah, I was a Balmain junior. I played for uh, Gladesville and Northride and finally with uh, Leichhardt Wanderers and played through their junior rep system over there. And at 18, I was picked in the President's Cup, which was in an under-8, under-21 side, and I got the uh, best and fairest, and they graded me. So I played the back end of 23s as an 18-year-old, and then my last game was against Manly at Brookvale Oval in reserve grade. And I remember going home to my parents and saying I got picked in reserve grade. My mother burst into tears. She said, you can't play against those men there, old guys. And, <laughs> and, uh, Standard mother. So the front row I played against was Fred Jones, Norm Pounder and Billy Hamilton. Oh, wow. As a reserve grade side. So I was an 18-year-old kid. I was more inclined to ask for their autograph than I was to do anything else. 
What about that as a front row, as a young, as a young guy coming in to see, you know, Freddie Jones, mm. who is, you know, <laughs> notorious, infamous, yeah. old Freddie, yeah. but um, Normie and uh, and Herman. Yeah. Well, big, Herman had been uh, gone on the Kangaroo man. Tour the yeah. year before. Uh, it was quite amazing. I trained with the first grade team in the off season, and um, Donnie Ferner from Queanbeyan rang me up and said, uh, "We want to talk to you about coming down and playing down here." And I'd never been down there, so I said, "I'll go down and have a drink and just say no and come home." And, and I came home to my parents, who didn't even know I'd gone down there, by the way. And uh, I came home and I said, I've, I've signed with Queen Bee and I, go, I, le- I leave home next Tuesday. <laughs> the Queen Bee and Blues. <laughs> Queen Bee and Blues. Seaford Oval. Seaford Oval, yeah. who were the, you know, they, they spawned the whole Canberra Raiders thing, you know. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. Great memories there. Now, after representing Country First in 1976, you signed with Manly on the advice of your uncle, former test forward Alan Thompson, no P. Not to be mixed up with obviously former five eight Alan Thompson. What's your memories of watching your uncle play for Australia? I mean, there was a pretty popular story that I uh, sat on my father's shoulders and watched Alan from the Paddington Hill when he played his first test. And uh, like all good stories, there's elements of truth and elements of fiction in it. But uh, <laughs> but it was true. I uh, as a, as a kid, I was a footy nut. You know, that were the days when if you went to school and played junior league anywhere, you got a football pass to get you into any game anywhere, anytime. So my mum would give me two bob, which was twenty cents, which used to get me on a bus from our house into Eddie Avenue at Central Railway, and I'd walk up the hill and stand on the Paddington Hill and watch whoever was playing. You know, that was. Those were days of match of the day at the SCG, which back then was mostly South Sydney, but certainly Manly were out there as well. So I uh, took a keen interest in following Alan and, and winning, then winning the first comp had significance too. Well, just on Alan, we should uh, touch on his great career. He came to Manly in 1969. He, uh, he was reserved in Manly's grand final loss in 1970, but played in the club's first premiership title in 1972. He returned to Manly as coach in 1980, but the stay was brief for the club, failing to make the semi-finals. Tell us about the memories of Alan. Was he your hero growing up, being an uncle? It was funny, you know, my, as you said earlier, my dad had played for Balmain and my brother did as well, but I wasn't really that aware of it. It wasn't a big thing at home. But certainly with Alan, at an impressionable age that I was, the fact that he was playing first grade for Manly certainly had an impact. He used to come out of our home about once a week to get a free feed because a school teacher, so he'd be finished work at three and come over and he'd grab us and take us down the local oval and just flog the living daylights out of us <laughs> for training because he wasn't the most skillful of players, Alan, but he was the most determined like I've ever met in my life. I still tell the story. I told Ray, Roy Masters the story recently that as a young kid, like a 15-year-old I think it was, Thompson family were Newcastle people and they were legacy kids, so they didn't have, never had a lot of money. And uh, Alan jumped on a fixed wheel push bike and rode from Newcastle to Sydney on the old road. There's no freeway back then. Arrived at my parents' door, knocked on the door. My dad was an electrician, so he wasn't at home. Mum said he knocked on the door. And she said, what are you doing here, Alan? She said, he said, I'm just come down to pick up the hand weights Jim's going to give me. So he stayed the night, strapped a set of dumbbells to his handlebars and rode back to Newcastle. And I said to him later, I said, did you do that on your own? He said, oh, no, I started out with a few mates, but no one got past Swansea Bridge. <laughs> So he was that determined to be successful. He was a, a tough, very tough and determined bloke. But as I said, not very skillful. So he That's was amazing. a bit of a hero. He was a bit of a hero. That's an me. incredible story. Like yeah. the, the motivation in that story alone is just incredible, isn't it? Absolutely. To get a set of dumbbells because he knew that he needed to get bigger and stronger yeah. and that sort of thing, especially yeah, b- back then as well. Um, yeah, that, that, that's amazing. There's so many good stories like that. Oh, you know, yeah. you used to hear the stories about um, Billy Hamilton, you know, training in his in his police boots with the the sandbag on, and you know, all this sort of thing. You know, it's, yeah, they're pretty cool stories. They are. 
Well, going back to 1978, now your best year, uh, Ian, in 1978, you played 28 games for the Seagulls, scored six tries. Do you remember any outstanding tries for a front rower? Every try remember. for a front Every... rower is outstanding, Mark, Mark will tell you. Thank you, Box. Yeah, it was uh, any time you got across the line was a minor miracle. But uh, <laughs> I do remember scoring one at the SCG, and I ran... I say to people, 50 metres to, to score it. It might, it might have been less. That was a pretty cool moment to score a try at the SCG. How good have that been, scoring a try at the SCG? Just be Even like just playing at the SCG. Yeah. We played against Parramatta there in 07 maybe, um, I think it was. Anyway, and just to, to be in the members, you know, in with the cricketers, I got Tubby Taylor's locker, of course, you know, they hanging a bit of shit on me, that sort of thing. Any mm. reason why you got Tubby? Well, I was a little bit Tubbier then, you know, <laughs> it's fine. So. Um, but um, it, it was amazing. Just the, you know, the feel you ran out in that yeah. ground and stuff. It was, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really good memory. Great, had a, great. It had an aura, didn't it? Absolutely. Really. Frank Stanton used to say, if you want to win football comps, you've got to be able to learn how to win games at the SCG. Yeah. Because that, that's where all the finals and grand finals were from. Mm. Sure were. Now, uh, you represent New South Wales in 1978, and you also played in your first test against New Zealand. Obviously, going on to win a premiership with Manly. Tell us about playing for New South Wales. That was obviously before the State of Origin period. Tell us about those days playing for New South Wales. Well, it's, when you reflect back on State of Origin, now my New South Wales team had Paul Kahn in the front row with me. He was a Queenslander. Rod Reddy in second row, who's a Queenslander, and Johnny Rebo, who's playing second row as a Queenslander as well. So we, uh, it's it's ironic to look at it now and think about State of Origin, but back then it was, uh, I don't know, it was any more, it couldn't have been any more competitive because State of Origin is such a, a tough game now. It was ironic to have Queenslanders in, in the New South Wales team, but uh, and New South Wales just dominated them for that reason. You know, the, the difference in class between Sydney football and, and Brisbane football at that time was quite distinct. Now, tell us about uh, your test debut. Well, it was, uh, funnily enough, at the SCG. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, it was a special moment. I was 22, I think, at the time. So quite honestly, I, uh, I don't think I fully appreciated it. You know, it's something as a kid you always aspire to, to do and something you always uh, want to achieve. But when you actually do it as a 22-year-old, I honestly don't think I fully appreciated the significance of it. The further you get away from it, the more you appreciate it, I think. Obviously, it's a proud moment for the family. Tell us yeah. who was there on that day for you. Oh, they were all there. <laughs> my mum was one of 12. My father was one of 11. Oh, jeez. Uh, it's half the Barongolstein. Yeah, so days. I had 65 first cousins. So it was uh, it was Thompsonville out there. Well, <laughs> not all. they weren't all Thompsons, but there was a fair few of them out there. And it was an interesting, really funny week too because uh, you went into camp and I'd been at a camp with the countryside and been at a camp with the New South Wales, but the test camp was something different because quite honestly, I... I say to people that two years before that, I was asking, I would, I would have walked up to these blokes and asked them for their autograph, and now I'm sharing a room with Rod Reddy, and I thought, God Almighty, I was like, how, how does that happen? You know, it's quite spooky in a way. Now, uh, the 1978 final series. Now, everyone knows what happened, obviously, the grand final. We, we'll go through that 78 final series. But that team, incredible team, that was a true champion team. Like, when we go through it all, six games in 25 days. And you lost to Cronulla, 17-12, in the major preliminary semifinal. Tell us about that match. you recall that match? Yeah, we, uh, ironically, isn't it funny how you have teams where you seem to play better and, and you have less trouble with certain clubs. And I don't know whether that's their style or their culture or whatever it is, but with Canola, we always had a great deal of success. So we'd beaten them pretty easily in both competition games. And then they, I think we probably took it a little bit easy in that semi-final. But I was always confident if we had another crack at them, we'd still get on the top of them. But uh, as I say, I don't think we prepped as well as we probably should have or could have. Now, after losing to Cronulla, it becomes sudden death. 13-all draw with Parramatta. A little bit unlucky. Johnny Peard saved the Eels that day. 
Yeah, the bomber. Yeah, he, uh, it was at the tail end of his career, Johnny Peard, by then, but he was still a very classy player, a good thinker, a uh, good talker. So he uh, salvaged a draw out of it somewhere. And again, isn't it funny? I, I thought if he, obviously, at the end of the game and it's a draw and they talk about having another replay, I, again, I wasn't that worried that they were going to get on top of us again. I thought we had their measure at that point as well. Well, the three days later, it was a replay, and this time you did get their measure. They beat Parramatta 17 11. Then you come into Western Suburbs, and obviously the great rivalry of Western Suburbs. You beat them 14-7 in the preliminary final. But by that stage, Ian, there were so many injuries, wasn't there? There were. It's uh, no different from the modern game. You know, by this stage of the season, everyone's getting a noodle, aren't they, really? It's just degrees of injury. And we were in that position as well, you know, that uh, everyone would, because of the intensity of semifinals and and the fact you've been through a full season, everyone's carrying an injury. So it was a pretty heroic win. Again, it's funny, you know, West always thought we'd beat them too. You know, they they froze a little bit. In fact, they got in the semifinals the following year and froze again. They were minor premiers the following year and froze again. Yeah, so it was, uh, it was, still good to beat him because the, that rivalry was that was 78 was a real start of all that fighting the fibro the, the silver tails thing yeah, <laughs> yeah and the famous game down there in melbourne and the famous started. game in melbourne yeah well I, I, you talk about great coaches roy masters i don't think was a great coach he was a great at getting into your head you know yeah. and i still talk to boydie now about it yeah and boy and and you know boydie oh. better than i do but boydie says it looks me in the eye and he says oh mate all that stuff he went in on with you know i knew what it was all about I said, so how was it that your eyes were rolling in your head at the time? So he was very good at it, Roy. Oh, completely rolling his eyes. You know, because Les was um, my coach in Cootamundra before I signed with the Raiders in high school. And I was playing first grade there as a 17-year-old, young kid, you know. And, yeah, I remember Boydie just telling the stories about Roy and, and, and things like that. And then each time I see him, I get a little bit more stories out of him as well. But he, he's, he's a great guy, Les, uh, but a lunatic in the day. Yeah. Absolute lunatic. White line fever. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of stories, uh, one of our guests previously was, of course, uh, the great halfback, Johnny Gibbs. And he was telling Boxy and I about he could hear in the dressing room next door what Roy Masters was yelling. And he said, yeah, don't forget that number seven, get that little bike, break his legs. And Gibbs is saying, what's going on here? Yeah. It what was, was it like when you got out there and, and you just knew it was on? It was... Um it was a different era, though, really, wasn't it? You could do that stuff. And, you know, as a front rower, you learnt fairly quickly. You do it on a particular side of the field, away from the camera, because they didn't have all the cameras yeah. everywhere in those days. You had two or three cameras on one side of the oval. So as soon as you went the other side of the oval, you could do whatever you wanted to do. So it was a bit it was a bit more relaxed. I remember we went out in 77, uh, sorry, 78, and then 79, it was all war. Every game was just a war, you know. In 80, my uncle Alan came down and he got us into the dressing room before the game. He said, I'm sick of being reactive. Let's be proactive. The first tackle, let's just put a stink on. <laughs> well, there goes the halftime siren here, Ian. So we're going to take a short break here from our great sponsor and return very shortly with the great McGilla. The Golden Eagles podcast is proudly presented by Wormald, a classic sponsor of the Manly Warringah Sea Eagles. Wormald is a leading provider of fire protection solutions, helping to protect Australian people and property for over 130 years. Wormald's expertise spans the design, manufacture, installation and service of fire safety products and equipment, backed up with a comprehensive range of fire services, from engineering advice to fire safety training. You can rely on Wormald to help protect you. Visit wormald.com.au.
And welcome back to our chat with Ian Thompson, the great Megillah. Now, Megillah, the 1978 Grand Final. Tell us about the week leading up. This is your first Grand Final for the Seagulls. What's it like? I'd been in Grand Finals before down in juniors, obviously, and and, uh, and down in Queanbeyan, but uh, this was something totally different. But the fact that we had so many players who'd played in the 76 Grand Final for us, it was great for me as a young bloke to to try and understand the, you know, what was going to happen and the significance of the game. And the, the emphasis was on just trying to enjoy the week because we went into a, into a full-time camp for it, which was great. And I think I put on about three kilo in the week. <laughs> Hotel fever, you used to call that. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone stay away from the buffet. <laughs> How did you cope, Boxy, in those days? Well, it's funny. It is like they say you have to what, yeah, lose a grand final to win one. Um, and certainly 2007 when we made it, oh, that's the thing. It was young. Yeah, we were playing great footy. We had the ascendancy that we needed. But everything that happened during that week, you just don't know what's coming. The media, the grand final breakfast and all this sort of thing that, that was in there. Um, and certainly going to 2008, we knew what was coming. You know, we knew what the crowd would be like. But even just the roar of the crowd, like you can't, you cannot explain it. Um, and the feeling when you run out there, knowing it's grand final day, the anthem. That's why when I watch the game, the the games these these days, you know, you always just get that feeling inside yeah. of that anthem when you're yeah. sitting there with your mates, and it's a, it's a, it's a special it's a special thing. It's hard to describe. I know one thing you're looking forward to. That was the buffet. How well, was the, the buffet? <clears throat> the buffet. Always look forward to a buffet. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, definitely hotel fever when you go away. They'd have to say, listen, just calm yourself down. Blokes would. They put on two or three kilos in uh, in a couple of days. Just calm down on the chicken. Leave it alone. <laughs> all right. Now the famous '78 Grand Final. Obviously, eleven all draw. Describe the feeling full time. Did you turn around and say? What's going on here? Do we keep playing? Well, it was a bit like that. Hollywood Hartley, who was the referee, he uh, he even was a bit unsure about what to do next, to be perfectly honest. And someone ran out and had some sort of whisper in his ear and said, no, that's it. We, we're playing again Wednesday. And uh, after the initial shock set in, Max, uh, who was captain at the time, our thrower, said, uh, let's run off. Oh, Jesus, run off. We were lucky to be walking off most of them. <laughs> yeah. But somehow they uh, mustered up enough strength to we all ran off and they didn't. So I don't know whether that was some sort of psychological victory or not. But, uh, yeah, you were obviously going to lead into the replay. And, you know, if there's one player won that for us, it was Wombat. He, he had a genius of a game. Well, I'm glad that you touched on running off because the great Alan Thompson, the previous guest on our Golden Eagles podcast, I'll just read this quote to you. We will come off the field at half time. This is in regards to all the injuries and, and how they cope. We will come off the field at half time and beg each other to jog from the field to make the other teams think that we were fit. We had to drag some blokes off, but they all did it. Like, that just sums up the team, the injuries, the never-say-die attitude. Yeah, there was a lot of good feeling and good spirit in that team, more than uh, any other team I've been a part of. Uh, because you went through that adversity, it sort of was a very, very bonding experience. And it is a psychological thing as well, you know. Like, when you're absolutely out on your feet... Halftime whistle blows and all you want to do is just drop down and try and suck them in. But looking at the opposition, now you've got a, a full 40 minutes to come and just suck it up, you know, never show, never show any weakness. And it would have been more so back then, I reckon, you know. Well, a few days later, you go on to win the grand final. Describe that moment, Ian. 
again, it was a bit surreal, you know, because uh, at the end of it all, because we'd been, we'd been what we had been through, it almost felt like relief more than anything else, you know, and the irony of which was that was the Wednesday and by the Friday I was on a plane to England, so it wasn't like we had a great deal of opportunity to celebrate it either. It was all, again, like all these things, the further you get away from them, I think the more you appreciate what you did and how you did it. Mm. Now, that 78 team, like I said, a real team of heroes and one of the greatest teams Manly's ever fielded. The forward pack, you were there, I was in the front row. Tell us about Terry Randall. We all know what he was like as a defender, but Terry Randall, Bruce Walker, John Harvey. No, it was a great forward pack, there's no doubt. And uh, Thrower was hooker. Max went on the Kangaroo Tour and actually went on and captained the Kangaroo Tour, which, is, which was a fantastic effort on his part. But Randall was undoubtedly the leader of that pack. He was, in my mind, the best defender I'd seen, the best timing I'd seen. Jake Trevojevic has got great timing in defence, but uh, Randall had fantastic timing. And uh, as we said in the halftime break, if you ever get a chance to see the tackle Igor made on Dallas Donnelly in the West semi-final, that was a turning point for us as a team in that whole series. So Randall was fantastic. We had a Blake Ian Martin. And in the great debate about the greatest players never to play for Australia. The Martian. I would put the Martian up there as number one. He was a fantastic player. Tough little bugger. Skillful. Had a little bit of shit in him. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he's, you he's, he's hilarious. He's, a, he's such a good bloke to have a chat to. You know, Golden Eagles mm. um, you know, events when we've had him. And he's just got great stories. Just yeah. a real down-to-earth bloke. And you, you wouldn't believe that, you know, the career that, he, that he's oh, actually yeah. had is, you yeah. know, unbelievable. The amount of premierships he's won. So you it was know? a great forward pack. There's no doubt about it. In, a, in an era when the old adage was you had to have a great forward pack to win the game. It's a little bit different now, though, box, I think, too. You know? Yeah, no, I think it is. I always, and probably being an old front rower myself, always say that, you know, it's one in the middle. You can't win an edge if you can't win the middle. But um, there's just so many outstanding, freakish outside backs and halves and, and this sort of thing as well. But, you know, I think that when you get a, a really good, skillful, um, hard front rower like a Jake Trebojevic who can pass, you know, and, and do all that sort of thing, but he can he can hit and he'll stay out there for 80 minutes and he'll work his absolute bum off. You can't win a competition without without a guy like that, no. I don't think. And I don't think you don't have to dominate like we did in the old days, but you can't be dominated either. Absolutely not. Because if, if, if you're not holding your own and you're going backwards, you can't. it's hard for the backs to operate. Definitely. Well, speaking of the backs, I'm going to throw some names here. Edie, Gartner, Alan Thompson, Steve Martin, to name a few. Graham Moody, the Wombat. What was so special about the Wombat? He had fantastic vision for a bloke, you know, for hitting holes. And Snake was the same, you know. That You see players who just instinctively find and run to holes. And uh, Wombat was very, very good at that. And because he was so thick and strong through the hips and, and legs that if you didn't hit him 100%, he'd break the tackle. And uh, so he was, he was great, had fantastic hands. Absolutely fantastic set of hands as well. So he was good. Poor old Gibbsy missed the grand final because he tore the hammy and, and uh, Wizkid came in and uh, and made the kangaroo tour from it. But uh, Alan Thompson was a great player. Russell Gartner, I still look back and wonder how Frogs missed the grand fi- the kangaroo tour, to be honest, because he stored, scored a couple of tries in the Parramatta game and, you know, and, and uh, he, he was very, very good centre. Very good centre. Well, you just mentioned the Kangaroo Tour and obviously Edie, John Gibbs, Martin, Walker, Krillich and Thompson joined you on that tour. You played in two tests, deciding Ashes Test against Great Britain and the second test against France, as well as another uh, 13 other games. Tell us about taking on the Poms, obviously a great rivalry. You must have loved that. 
It was yeah, and we knew a few of them too because that was the start of the time period when uh, we'd had Steve Norton and Gary Stevens and Mal Reilly and Phil Lowe, so there was a connection there already. But uh, and that was true for all the other clubs, you know, blokes like Brian Lockwood had come out to Balmain, so there was, a, there was a great sort of affinity between the two teams. But it, when you're playing for the country, it was something special. There's no doubt about it. And on their home soil, they were a different side to out here. You know, the hard grounds out here don't suit them, but the softer grounds over there, they they love it. Where did, and it you, was, where did you play at? Where, did you, where was that uh, test against Great first Britain? First one at? was against Wigan. Second one was at Bradford. Third one was at Leeds. Oddsall. At Ellen Road. Ellen Road, yeah, yeah. nice, yep. And Oddsall, you would have played at Oddsall against Oddsall, at Bradford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's... Which is a some, weird some, ground. Some of those grounds over there. I mean, my first game over there was against Salford uh, in the middle of Manchester, and you're driving through these little streets, just like the old Nosley Road um, for St. Helens, and pull up and there's this little ground <laughs> in, in the middle of, you know, all these little terrace houses and stuff and cold. The first time I played at Headingley was actually the pitch was frozen and I'd never experienced that in my life, but yeah. holy shit, by the end of it, not, no bark on your knees. You know, it was, um, it was it's interesting. It was funny about Headingley. That third test was at Headingley. Strangely, they had common bathrooms, you know, showers yeah. and toilets. Yeah. So I've gone in for a, a, a nervous one before the game and there's Knocker Norton who had played with it manly the year before. He's doing the same thing. And we, we'd been great mates out here. He looked at me and I looked at him and I didn't know what to say. And he said, hello, mate. He said, I've got to hate thee for the next two hours. <laughs> what about that? That's, uh, yeah, that, that, that's, that's awesome. I've got to hate you for the next two hours. Whereas these days you just seem like you'd be having a, having a joke and a laugh and they mm. play against each other and they probably played all this representative football back then, different time. I'm going to try and rip your head off for yeah. the next two hours. Yeah. Okay, we'll have, a, we'll have a pint after it, no <laughs> troubles. And he did. <laughs> <laughs> Why not enjoy it? Now, uh, after uh, 38 more games for Manly, 1979 to 1980, you leave for the Balmain Tigers. Like you said, that's who you came through, the graded. What was that like for you? Well, it was an emotional decision rather than a logical decision um, because at the time, Jack Gibson had rung me up and wanted me to go to Parramatta. And I look back now and that would have been 81, 82, 83 premierships with Parramatta, possibly. But, but I knocked him back and uh, he never spoke to me again, Jack. He took it very he took it very personally. <laughs> took it very personally. But um, I went back to Balmain for uh, really emotional reasons. You know, it was mm. a... I hadn't played first grade there and, and uh, my brother had it by that time and as I said my father was and he was coaching one of the lower grade sides at the time as well so first game I played there I got sent off I think that I came back and got uh, taught, ruptured some tendons in my shoulder I ended up playing about five games all year I think it was it was ridiculous and then came back yeah well you came back in 1982 and you finished with Manly in 1986 as a player 114 games for the Seagulls now the toughest plays you played against and played alongside what's the definition Definition of toughness for Ian Thompson. Everyone equates it to someone who goes out there throwing punches, but you know, to me, you can't get harder than Randall and, and Ian Martin and those sorts of blokes. But the blokes I always admire were the Peter Sterlings. I mean, in our, in our era, the game plan was go out and take Sterling's head off. You know, when you're playing Parramatta, that was the that was the one game plan you had. And in those days, you could do it to an extent. So the fact that he kept getting up and the fact that he couldn't be put off his game from a mental point of view, that's a tough player. That's a tough play. So I always admired Sterling. I thought he was a great player, a really great player. There's the other sort of physical toughness, which Randall, Ian Martin, Craig Young at St George was a hard bloke. Peter Kelly from Canterbury was a hard bloke. You know, that I don't think there's too many cowards playing rugby league. And really the ability to play with injuries. And Randall was probably the best I'd ever seen at mm. that. 
Well, after your great career, you stay involved, I should say, in rugby league and getting the administration side. And then in 2000, probably something that's a little bit touchy here with the, some of the Seagulls fans still, but you became chairman of, let's say, the troubled Northern Eagles Club, put that lightly. You oversaw the demise of the merge between Manly and Norse at the end of 2001. And then you got the NRL franchise back to the Seagulls. Tell us about those days, Ian, setting up the Northern Eagles. What can you say? Well, it was an interesting period of time, you know, that Manly had gone into a joint venture with Norse for the same reason Norse went into a joint venture with Manly. They were both broke. So it was a financial necessity. Arco asked me to go on the board and then I went on the board of the Nor- of that Northern Eagles and then lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, they asked me to be chairman and it was a uh, bitter sort of partnership. Neither side could see logic in it and I went in there obviously from a Manly side and I made a promise at the start of it all. I said, I'll bring objectivity to it. You might, I might piss both sides of the equation off, but I'll be making decisions based on the best interest of the Northern Eagles. And when we did, my first act was to do a review of the financials and that went from a $600,000 profit for argument's sake to a $1.2 million loss in, in the space of one month. So I was being made chairman, it was a bit like being made captain of the Titanic after it hit the iceberg, you know, it was, <laughs> it was a bit of a, it was a dead duck effectively. Mm. The way the uh, deal had been structured, the license went back to Manly. So Arco at that point said, well, start us off again. Right? Uh, to which I famously said, how much money have you got? And I think it was, we got $500,000 grant, you know. A couple of years later, Lachlan Murdoch was telling me though how much money they were given Brisbane Broncos, 500000 was small change. Mm. You know? Well, after the Northern Eagles days, you continued on as the Manly CEO. You touch on Arco. As an administrator in rugby league at the time, what did you take and what did you learn from the great Ken Arfferson? I think you learn bits and pieces from everyone you come up with, don't you? Some, in some cases, it's things what to do, and in other cases, it's things not to do. You know, so Arco was absolutely no doubt his passion for not only manly but the game in general. He he loves it. He, he was a great mentor to me in, during that period. I've run companies since then, but that was the first time I'd ever run a high-profile and public company. But uh, it was an interesting time, and I don't know if you're going to get on a Max, Max Del Medge, but uh, it's worth noting that, uh, in my view, Manly wouldn't be here except for him. There's mm. no doubt in my mind at all Absolutely. Manly would not exist if couldn't, he had Couldn't agree with you more. Which is an interesting story, by the way. I don't know if you want me to tell you. Yeah, but that's fine. We, uh, I knew Max through some property development stuff, and uh, I rang him and said, let's go and have lunch. So we went to have lunch in a little Italian restaurant up at Monavale. After about three bottles of red, we were crying on each other's shoulder and I, had, I walked out with a, a signed coaster with, for Max's commitment to uh, uh, the second largest sponsorship in the NRL at that particular time. So I rang him next morning and said, Max, do you remember the conversation? He said, yeah, 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 I'm on board, I'm on board. At that time, we were broke. We were hours away from folding the tents. It was amazing, amazing time. What a, what a bloke, Maxie. You know, he uh, loved the club. And you know, like McGillis said, we we wouldn't have the Seagulls. We wouldn't have been able to go on and do what we did in 2008 or 2011, you know. Like, um, you know, a great guy and a true gentleman and, and so glad that he that he helped save this place. Well said. Now, Ian, today you've talked about companies and obviously you've been involved in business for a while. Tell us what you're up to and a bit about the Thompson family. 
I'm uh, currently CEO up at Forest RSL. I've been, since the CEO job at uh, Manly, I, I ran a Japanese gaming company, the Australian uh, arm of it all. I've worked uh, in and around the gaming industry for uh, probably about the last 20 years. I've run liquor liquor companies during that period as well, so I've covered all the vices, you know, gambling, <laughs> liquor. And my wife won't take kindly to me doing anything beyond that for any other vice, but it's been really interesting. And and running a club, I'm very supportive of the whole club industry. I think it's a great business model. And uh, I don't know about you two, but I wouldn't have played sport had it not been for licensed clubs. So I couldn't afford it to. So I think I'm trying to repay a bit of debt there. From a family point of view, I'm married to Francine, my wife, uh, who's the best decision I made. And we have three children, and I have two children my my first marriage as well. And pleasingly, they're all out of school now. For the first time in 30-odd years, I'm not playing school fees. <laughs> Which should translate to more money in my pocket, but it hasn't quite worked that way yet. I was going to say, it'd be holidays. (laughs) uh, We're a very close family. I uh, try and spend as much time as I can with them. All right. Now, uh, final question. You played against some tough props. You mentioned to me earlier, Dallas Donnelly. He's obviously one of them. Tell us about the great Dallas. Well, Dallas was a handful because he was, um, to tackle him, he was so squat. He was really short and thick set. He had a bit of mongrel in him too, you know. In those days, it was, you know, you go into scrums, you throw punches. That was, you know, one of the reasons you were there in a way. And and Dallas was good at that. Ironically, uh, he was off the field is nature's gentleman. He had a bit of that white line fever like Les Boyd. But, uh, yeah, he was a very, very tough, hard prop. But as I touched on earlier, so was Peter Kelly. Ronnie Hildich, who I played a test with as he was my hooker in one of the tests he uh he converted to prop and he was a very hard bloke you know but as i said i don't think there's too many cowards out mm. there but it was an era when you box and uh me front rowers i think you're playing the toughest position in the toughest sport stanton used to have a saying it's, it's no place for the faint-hearted no, exactly now speaking of places one of the great traditions and this being a golden eagles podcast is golden eagles day tell us about how much golden eagles day means to you and obviously the work boxy does it's fantastic. It really is. And uh, I work with Box to try and expand it and make it a bit broader based than just a first grade reunion. And we did that. And I think it was a great step for the whole organisation. And I think one of the great things about sport is the camaraderie you get out of it more than anything else. You know, at the end of the day, the money is a facilitator for your lifestyle. But uh, the further you get in your life, you realise there's other things than, than money and, and the, the friendships you make out of it is fantastic and I think the great thing about the Golden Eagles is that it links those eras which it gives an opportunity to, to go and you know talk to players who played in the 40s and 50s put them in touch with players who are playing nowadays and I think that's a, a wonderful wonderful thing absolutely and bringing in you know those old strappers because these strappers you look at Alex Ross at the club now Rossi knows everyone you know he was he was there when you were there too McGillar you know I still call Rossi now um, and and chat to him you know all these old guys I was talking to Greg Alexander today because I needed some tips on the paint that I was going to paint the back fence with. True story. But um, great guys, and they love coming along. They love the boys as much as the boys love them. So, you know, that's that's the thing. You know, when once you've finished playing, no one cares how many first-grade games you played. You know, you care about the memories and the blokes that you played with, and it's a club, you know, and that's what we wanted to be, you know, bring bring everyone back in and um, and celebrate the, the good years that we had. Mm. That's an important distinction, isn't it? It's not just players. You bring Greg Alexander back. Yeah. You bring Rossi back. Yep. You bring Wok back. Because they're, they're all vital parts of uh, 
the Manly structure, the Manly family. Absolutely. Well, well said, mate. Well, look, Ian, uh, thanks for your time today uh, to have a chat to one of the great Manly front rowers and, and good to see you're doing so well today in business. 114 games, Boxy, 114 games for Manly, New South Wales, Australia, the great Megilla. Thanks for your time. Thank you. This has been the Golden Eagles podcast, presented by Wormald and recorded in the studios of Manly media partner, ASCII Live Media. You can follow the Sea Eagles on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. For more episodes and other official Sea Eagles podcast channel shows, head to seaeagles.com.au forward slash podcast. This has been an ASCII Live Media production for the Manly Warringah Sea Eagles official podcast channel. Thank you.